Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast, where we are currently in the midst of covering all of the John Grisham legal thriller film adaptations. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me for another conversation about lawyers trying to win cases and not get murdered is my best friend and co-host, Patch. I'm so glad we do podcasting because this is probably the least professional thing that would get you murdered if you did, you know, just doing podcasting. So I'm glad we're doing this. It's a very safe profession. Don't go see bodies, bodies, bodies out now well, at theaters. Just, just, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm not, I'm okay, just saying, well, I'm not saying I, what happens. I'm just corrected. saying. I sit correct. Podcasting can be a threat is all I'm saying. There's a phenomenal- I guess that was Joe Rogan. He would know. Joe Rogan would know. <laughs> it's true. There's a great <laughs> rant about podcasting and how difficult it is in this Gen Z slasher satire movie that Bodies, Bodies, Bodies is out, out now. And it's it, it knocked me out. Like I was laughing out loud and just relating <laughs> so much to this one particular moment about the difficulty of podcasting and- people not understanding it right what goes into it and the way that this girl like covered in blood is like <laughs> you just don't get it the editing and the planning and the record and it was like <laughs> it's phenomenal anyway i don't know why i'm on a tangent it's that's you have to amen to that one that's good yeah, stuff okay. <laughs> well now that i've spoiled bodies 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 uh we're not we're gonna go ahead and spoil this one too <laughs> this is a time to kill as you will have seen because you clicked play on the episode title. So this is John Grisham's first ever novel, technically. This is the first book he wrote, but it was rejected by several publishers, and it only got a really tiny print run of about 5,000 copies initially. And then once his second book, The Firm, came out and blew up and became a New York Times bestseller. They went back and reprinted A Time to Kill in trade paperback. I still remember the books. I had them all. It was a blue, kind of a glossy blue cover for A Time to Kill. I want to say it was a green uh, cover for the firm. And then the Pelican Brief was like a gold. And they were all the same. They were these fat, like the short, thick trade paperback books. I owned them all. And so then then it came out and retroactively this story kind of launched into fandom as well. People really related to it or responded to it, I should say. Hopefully people didn't relate to it a lot because that would be yeah. sad. But <laughs> um, but yeah, so The Firm ends up being the first film adaptation of his novels and this was the fourth movie and so i kind of wanted to start there because this was your first viewing is that right just to set the tone yes it was okay so you hadn't seen it before i hadn't seen it in 15 to 20 years or so probably but kind of was up there amongst my top two favorites i remembered it very fondly um and I, but i just wanted to kind of open with all of this because i think it's fascinating that this story was very difficult to sell for him as a novel. And that then after his more thrilling, less 
of a courtroom drama book, which is The Firm, becomes a hit, then they kind of go back and they're like, oh, we should publish this, and people latch onto it as well. But then, since we're talking cinematic here, why do you think it is that The Firm was the first adaptation? And not only why was The Firm the first adaptation, because that's probably an easy question, but why is it that it took until the fourth before we got A Time to Kill? I would say it's probably due to similar reasons to why the book itself had trouble selling until the firm came out. And it's because what we see, and I don't know what the, I can't speak for the book, but in terms of the movie adaptation, my wife was watching it with me. She'd actually seen it several years ago and it was only about like a third of the way through. I was like, Oh my gosh. And she's like, wait, you haven't seen this? I was like, no, I have not seen this. Welcome to the world of Blind Spot Patch, because that's just me. What I noticed, what she pointed out, was that so much takes place in the first 20 minutes, and it's so tragic, and it's so shocking. Like, all the stuff that sets up the rest of the movie is put right in like a 22-minute exposition. So you have the rape of a child. You have the killing of these two men. You have the setup of the the clan and then our main character in the form of uh, jack brigance and his crew all this stuff really kind of gets you into it and it's so dramatic so intense i would imagine that the book just like the movie being so heavily like in your face was probably a lot for people to digest so from a movie adaptation standpoint this movie came out 1996 i remember I think in the late 80s, early 90s, there was an HBO series called Bangin' in Little Rock. So racism was definitely something that was not unfamiliar to our country, specifically the South. And so to be quite honest, Aaron, I mean, this movie needed to probably have a little bit of a a lighter palette in the form of like the firm and the client. Things that were like, okay, we've got the lawyer movie, we've got the law movies. Okay. And here's one that Definitely feels different from its predecessors, but we sort of built a trust with John Grisham as an author, these directors, screenwriters that have come in and said, all right, these movies are successful. Let's see how the audience responds to a familiar author book adaptation. And in his second uh, movie adaptation, Joel Schumacher doing what I would call probably his one of his best dramas to to date. I mean, this was a guy who had just come off doing Batman and Robin, and I was incredibly surprised at the tone and the way in which he as a director and his his team maintained nuance and seriousness and maintained this sense of real drama in the throughout the entire movie. But the short answer is that I think that the audience needed to have something of an entry point into John Grisham from a film standpoint. And so we got three movies that were maybe approachable, maybe considered a little bit, they weren't lighthearted necessarily, but they felt like they were safe. They felt like, okay, we can, we can really sell Grisham as a storyteller in film form. This was not really a left turn necessarily, but it was definitely a, a halfway departure from what we'd experienced in the first three movies. One, because Yay, we get courtroom drama. Yeah, we've been waiting for this for four weeks. And so now we got it. 
But the subject matter itself was probably the most relatable, probably the most personable. And I think you have to have a little bit of some training wheels, a little bit of some elementary school teaching before you can really get into taking this this storyteller seriously. And considering that this was his first work, um, I think that says a lot about maybe the the production companies or the studios. I know we had different studios doing different ones. It wasn't just one studio. But the ability to actually take the time and say, all right, if we're going to do this one, which has a lot more subtlety, a lot more drama to it, a lot more intensity to it, let's wait on that. Let's bring these other ones in and see how they do. And so I think A Time to Kill was appropriately placed in this um, in this kind of Grisham verse. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I think that it's intriguing to see the arc so far, and I'm not well-versed yet in what is coming after. I mean, I've seen some of the movies, but some of them I haven't. And so these four, well, actually these three, not even really the client included, but the the three big, the firm, Pelican Brief, and A Time to Kill, are like the ones that most people know if you roll them off your tongue. Others, you kind of have to be a Grisham fan to recognize the other titles or whatever. And it's interesting that we have the firm where we have this law school recent graduate who's now a junior attorney who doesn't really practice any real law in that movie. It is really a thriller. He uses his legal knowledge to create a way out of this situation that he finds himself in. And that's how it's kind of a legal thriller, but it's so much more about this mystery that is going on and this danger that he potentially is in if he doesn't want to be party to it. And then we transition to the Pelican Brief, where we end up with someone who's not even graduated from law school yet, who does quite literally zero lawyering other than just writing an essay based on some of her knowledge and ideas and but there's no real actual application of her being a lawyer in this film whatsoever then we kind of shift drastically up it's almost like we started kind of mid drop almost down to nothing i feel like come back up even beyond the midpoint to where we have like a reggie love character in the client who is at least having to have conversations <laughs> with other lawyers. <laughs> and like one we talked about last week, one men's skill scene in a courtroom that's embarrassingly bad, but that's at least it's there. And then it feels like that was like such a perfect precursor. It's almost like Patrick, they they got the two thrillers out of the way. The two that were so easily marketable from a cinematic standpoint, because you got butts in seats, you proved that people would come out and pay money to see these movies. And then you're like, all right, now we're going to give you the one that's kind of a blend of those two things, the client, because it really is. It's got the thriller aspect of it, but it's got a little bit more of a legal kind of thing happening there because it's got that local back in the South. It's where Grisham is comfortable. And then it's like, okay, now we're going to give you the law movie, right? Like this is, I know it's got some thrilling stuff in it. I had actually forgotten about how action 
E is. Like there's quite a few clan events and and, and things that happen, but like basically just actionable items and moments in the movie. It's not just strictly drama, right? But I mean, they're dramatically shown. It's not like a shootout or anything for the most part. But point being is like this is um, the most legal he's been. And it was clear to me that it was like a situation like you said, where it's a prove it. Let's be sure people are going to come out to see him. And now we have this goodwill. And we think if we keep popping out these A-list casts, Joel Schumacher just did the last one. He can handle this too. The last one did fine. Like, it'll be okay. I think that's, I think that's why. I think if you would have led with this, it would have been a tough sell because people needed to all get on board and the book needed to catch fire even more than it had because, like you said, I mean, this is the thing. It's heavy, right? And a little context here. So I mentioned, you know, this was his first book. He has actually described it as being very autobiographical for him, not because he was Jake Brigance in any previous life, but he feels like this is akin to kind of some of the experiences that he did have as a young attorney. And he, he said that the drama is actually based on a case he witnessed of a 12-year-old rape victim in Mississippi. Um, and her and her 16-year-old sister had both been raped and beaten. Um, the, the thing is, it was different. It was a reversal. It was the people he witnessed, the girls were black and the, or I'm sorry, the girls were white and the assailant was black. But it got him to thinking, along with obvious inspiration of To Kill a Mockingbird being a part of this as well, but it got him to wondering what would happen if someone did what we all think, which is I would love to like get retribution and kill this guy. And so he just started telling a story, which is how many great writers form great stories. And it gives us this heavy, heavy, very ground level, dirty, gritty, local, like the setting to me is really well implemented. It is, it's very muggy. It feels like Mississippi to me like the woods and small towns in Arkansas and Mississippi and Tennessee and Alabama. And I think that it is a very drastic departure from something like the firm and the Pelican brief uh, on its surface. And I enjoy it because of how much of a courtroom drama it is, but not necessarily because of the case. Yeah. I, I like the fact that it has that. I also like the fact that it's local. This is something that really appeals to me. And I'll say this just up front. The Rainmaker is probably my favorite of the movies that I've seen. That could change because <laughs> there are a couple on our list coming up that I have not seen. But the locality of it, the ability for an audience to kind of attach themselves to specific characters in some way, shape or form, hopefully you're not attaching yourself to a Freddie Lee Cobb. If you are, then, you know, there's people you can talk to about that. But the fact that we have a very hot kind of, it, it does, definitely feels like To Kill a Mockingbird. I felt like I, I, I felt like these guys should have been in the courtroom just kind of wiping 
sweat off of their necks with handkerchiefs as they're talking to witnesses. And I think that when you watch the way this plays out, I agree with you. The case itself was not something that I was like, man, he Perry Masoned him to death. You know, it wasn't something like that. It wasn't like the aha moment or the I've got this one thing. I mean, there there was a little bit of that. It came early and I was like, that's definitely not going to be the ace up the sleeve. And that's what I enjoy about courtroom dramas. And that's what I enjoy about the Perry Mason TV show uh, when I would watch it with my dad is that Perry Mason would be like, but what about this? And it was like, yes, I wouldn't have even thought about that. That's great. Procedural dramas, That's I think that's what what I love about them in general is just the aha moment. It's like Sherlock Holmes, had... but in a courtroom instead of exactly, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, or even location. Yeah, just exactly. I mean, courtroom specifically. The practice was one of my absolute favorite TV shows growing up in the '90s because that's exactly what happened. You had not one, but potentially three different cases going on in a particular episode. Some of them would carry over, kind of like what you see in the West Wing, where you have an A plot, a B plot, a C plot. And the C plot gets resolved, but the A plot kind of spills over into their episode. The B plot resolves after that episode. But then anyway, so when you watch this movie, you get some of that. But more than anything else, you get that locale. You get that sense of, I could know these people. These people could be in such a small town that a lawyer would be friends with a particular client because he defended his brother. That's not unbelievable to think. And it's such a great contrast in the form of Jake Brigance to someone like uh, the DA, played by Kevin Spacey, because there's that great contrast. Now, that's prevalent in The Client, and I think that's something that carries over in this movie, this idea of the small-town lawyer going up against the big type thing. And it, it plays against the firm as well. You've got this rookie lawyer mm -hmm. going up against the big guys pelican brief and i think that's something that we can say is familiar in a lot of grisham stories so that's something that i'm going to be like okay a small time lawyer rookie lawyer going up against the big guys all right how is that going to play and that's what i've enjoyed about watching these grisham stories play out is that they're told in slightly different ways it's still that same kind of david and goliath story but it's done in ways that I'm like, okay, I can appreciate that way of storytelling. I can appreciate that kind of story. This one didn't work for me, but that's okay. And I think when you find something that works, that's probably why the audience became trusting of these movies is they were like, okay, we know we're going to get a David and Goliath story, but how's it going to be translated this time around? This movie basically said David and Goliath, but we're going to like dump a whole bunch of emotion onto it as well. And we're going to make you cry and we're going to make you like freak out in 20 minutes. <laughs> and so I think this is what made it so successful is that it said, here's familiar, now something completely refreshing. And of the movies that I've seen, this is probably the most intense in terms of its drama, which surprises me coming from the client directed by the same person. It just reminds me that the director is not the only one that makes something successful. Actors do, writers do, cinematographers mm -hmm. do. Everything comes together. And could the client have been equally as dramatic? Potentially, but I think our issues with that were that there were some kind of absurd moments where you have a young lawyer and a kid finding a body, which doesn't make sense. Spoiler yeah. alert if you haven't listened to that episode. And I think that for this, everything in the movie 
even if I didn't quite get behind the actual like case itself, it was believable to an extent Like it could have happened. How it actually played itself out still kind of the jury's still out, if I could use a pun <laughs> on whether or not I kind of get yeah. behind that. But I definitely loved everything that it sort of incited with the the clan and with this divided town and the lawyers and all the stuff that happened. None of it felt unrealistic to me, honestly. Right. Well, it feels to me like it's Joel Schumacher leveling up. I mean, he's building on what he did. And that's right. kind of the the progression of probably why they kept him on for this movie. Because it is, you just said it without saying it, but it is the small town underdog lawyer up against somebody who's bigger. So when the client, it's Reggie who's going up against the U.S. district attorney who wants to become a senator. Like he's doing, he's, he's very intent on his own political like desires. Here, it's Jake Brigance. He's going up against a prosecutor who, it's mentioned, he wants to be the governor. Like, he has political desires as well. It's very similar. In The Client, it's the mob coming after them and essentially trying to shut down someone from making their case. Here, it's the Klan trying to shut down and apply pressure and stop them from making their case. Like it's very much akin to each other. Like it, it, even just the, the plot structure, as far as, you know, the, the big points of moving a to B to C are obviously the details are different clearly, but I, I just found that really obvious <laughs> watching them back to back. And, and it made me, because we were talking about it last week, we were like, why in the world would they go to Joel Schumacher for this? This is crazy. I can't. And we wondered, well, this to me is why it has to be wise because they were like, well, it's the same movie, but you showed you could do something and people liked it. Now build on what you learned. And in a lot of ways you get better things to work with in this story. And you get a cast that is equally, if not, better top to bottom you know matthew mcconaughey carries this movie and it, and it is what it is but like this is the client was not a reggie love movie and that's part of the issue it's like it's not about susan sarandon she's not in it for a lot of it <laughs> and she's never like the focal point it's about the kid which was the misstep that we both felt very strongly whereas this is jake brigance and that's because it's that autobiographical nature right it's John Grisham making himself who he idealistically sees himself as in this case, as the hero who goes through turmoil with his family and the ridiculousness of like throwing a bomb in a tree. That's where the movies, that's where John Grisham loses me sometimes. And I'm like, we could have the threats and the crosses burning in your yard and I would still get a sense of your life being in danger. Like, I don't need you to actually heave the bomb up into the trees because <laughs> can we, can we, can we just on the briefcase, but, and why do you open it? I'm sorry. This was just one scene in the movie that I was just like, mm -hmm. stop it. The, the, the sheriff's like, well, open it up open it up and i'm thinking to myself the whole time like you guys realize that's probably a bomb right like that you assume it's a bomb why would you tell him to open it up if you assume it's a bomb it just it didn't make any sense to me so some of those things aside i think you know it is yeah. jake Brigance's story you are with him all the way through mm -hmm. the movie yeah it's a 
it is somewhat biographical. I won't say autobiographical because it's, yes, it's John Grisham inspired, but this is the first like full on, like we're, we're, we're watching him in almost every scene. And as McConaughey grows his character throughout the movie, we see how his growth affects and is affected by other people in the cast with Mitch. He had two people. He had his wife and he had his brother and they were perfectly suited for his character, but it was really just his, his journey. And so we get some of that here. I think what I like about McConaughey's performance is the fact that first of all, his accent is completely accurate. This is one of those movies that I think last week we talked about the fact that the the accents in the client could have probably just gone out the window. They just weren't that good. But McConaughey has this really great Southern accent and Kevin Spacey does a really great Southern accent. He's fantastic in Midnight Agreed. in the Garden of Good and Evil. He's got this really great Southern. I mean, he is, he has just this gentleman's kind of performance as a Southern gentleman. And it, adds so much complexity when he's quote a bad guy so putting that on top of his already great performance this feels very genuine it feels very much like we're taking folks that live in the south and we're just giving them lines to say so that they can encapsulate that so McConaughey's performance I think is elevated by those little things by the fact that he can speak the language or speak the tone of this but it's also the fact that his growth path comes in the form of getting connected with Roark and getting connected with Carly Haley. So he's got like all these characters around him that are really just sort of navigating his journey. And there's this one fantastic moment with his wife, Carla, where she comes in and I swear, I'm watching the scene and I look at my wife and I go, is this a dream? You know, he's in this, he's in his office and he's like half asleep and he's got like mcdonald's on the table and she comes in in her blondness and her white dress and she tells him that she understands why he's doing what he's doing and i'm like are you dreaming is she an angel and and it just felt kind of strange but i didn't make that connection that earlier in the in the movie he wasn't just sending them away because he wanted them to be safe i mean she really was i think on the verge of leaving him because of the fact that he is just taking all these chances. And so watching how he plays against these other characters, I think make his character that much more compelling because he's not just trying to win a case. He's got to prove himself to himself. He's got to prove himself to his wife. He's got to prove himself to Carly Haley, to just all these other people in ways that we look at and we go, it's not that you're trying to be someone you're not. Jake, it's that you're trying to really understand why you're doing what you're doing. And so that's why I think I like the movie so much is that it leaves room to just ask the question, why? Why is he taking on this case? Why does he continue to go through this? And he answers it for himself, but I'm kind of looking at it. Okay, why are you doing it for Carl? Why are you doing it for your wife? Why are you doing it for Roark? I mean, <laughs> are the motivations different? And if they're different, are they in contrast to each other? And I think that's what made it so compelling for me is that there were times where I'm like, who are you doing this for? I mean, who 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 is the motivator or what is the motivator for you? And I think that's a great theme throughout this, just 
to take it at a macro level, when a lawyer goes to bat for a client, what are his motives? I mean, we know what uh, the DA's motives are. <laughs> He's clear from the beginning. But I think that's what makes Jake's character so complex is that his motives, they kind of change. They kind of get massaged a little bit. And in the end, I think his motives change for the better. And he's got more reasons to do what he does by the end of the movie. So to me, that's what makes his character so compelling and why I love the fact that it centers around him. Well, there's a great moment that speaks to that with Carl where they have just, I don't remember, it's one point they're doing the motions and, you know, I think it's after they've <laughs> argued with the NAACP lawyers that have come <laughs> and he goes back and Carl's back in his cell and he's from the other side of the bars and he's just grinning and smiling and he's like, we make a great team. And I love the Samuel L. Jackson performance in this, by the way, it is one of the first times you will ever see Samuel L. Jackson in a movie vulnerable in a way that you don't think he could just, I'm going to get you MFR as his way out of it. Like you never, I never feel that way about him. Like I feel like he is just, weak and i mean i know what he does is obviously not weak but he's in a position of weakness due to his desire to provide for his family like he is so intent on his it's not at all at all about himself right and that's just a, a unique kind of role for him but this scene and his response to jake in that moment is he's like we are in a team he's like you're out there and i'm in here and i found that I actually sort of took offense to it for Jake because I was thinking to myself, I was like, but he is your teammate and I, and I get what you're saying, but in the, the reality is you're where you are and he is all you got and he is working his butt off trying to help you. And you know, it comes after Carl essentially picks him. And that's the thing is like, Carl's like, no, I'm going to stay here with Jake. And Jake feels like he's, won this victory and kind of they've gotten closer or whatever. And it, and it was just, it was a really interesting portrayal of that attorney client relationship. Mm -hmm. And I love that there's a stinger at the end of the movie. Once it's all wrapped up and over of Jake showing up at the family barbecue. Right. And that is, I think a really important beat here. Because it goes to show that through the experience, they were becoming a team. And Jake did truly care for Carl Lee and grow to respect him. And that it was more than just about winning a case. It was about this being a worthy human being in his eyes and someone that he wanted to spend time with. And that he, you know, not just wanted the person to have rights, but truly wanted to be in relationship with. And I like that the movie goes that way with the story. I like that it grows into that because it's, I don't know, it's just much more relatable for me. It's much more emotionally satisfying, I guess, honestly, when it's not just about winning the case and when it's yeah. not a little overly silly like the lawyer becoming a surrogate mother kind of a feel, right? Like you, we don't need yeah. something quite that heavy. This just felt very natural to me uh, in a way that 
I guess my idealistic side liked to see. Yeah. And I like the fact that when you look at the big tension that is built throughout the movie, this racial uh, tension, the fire plug in the South, as you put in your notes, I love that. That's great. This idea that it doesn't just become this commentary about a white savior, you know, the white lawyer. There's great commentary from Carl Lee where he's talking to Jake and he says, you're the enemy and that's the good thing. You know, you're the bad guy. You're the one that knows these people and you can communicate. And I thought in some ways that is probably the best backhanded compliment you can give somebody is to basically say, you don't have to apologize for being white and privileged. You don't have to do that. And I was a little, I was a little frustrated with that. But then there's a moment at the end of the trial where Jake looks at Carl and Carl says, wow, wow, Jake. Like he's an airman. He's like, I can't believe what you did. And Jake, and I don't know what the motive is behind this, but I think the expressions on both of their faces was one that was very satisfying to me. Jake says, I mean, I'm the enemy. And he walks away. And it's almost as if he was telling Carl, I'm not a role to play. You you didn't believe in what I was trying to do. You didn't believe in the fact that I cared about you. You thought that I was playing a role. In some ways, I felt like there's this fantastic balance between the manipulation of whiteness and blackness that is on display here in the form of the KKK, in the form of the NAACP. I thought those were such great contrast to each other that the movie clearly could have made the KKK be the the black and white, to use the black and white right. kind of approach. <laughs> it it could have been that. But then you have that little moment of the NAACP doing their own thing of manipulating because they want to take advantage of a black man being on trial. Everybody's got an agenda. And I think that's part of what John Grisham's story is here is that everybody has an agenda. And the question is, does Jake? And I think that's one of the questions he asked, what's my agenda? And that's one of the bigger themes of the movie that I think is so profound. It's asking that question, what are you doing here? I was even asking that question about Roark. I was like, what? She explained who she was. She explained where she comes from. She explained that she's from money and she does this and she's an advocate. But then I looked at my wife and I said, but why does she want this? Like, what is she getting out of this? And I think that's the question that the movie's trying to ask us is what is a, what does it look like to have a genuine motive when it comes to an event like this? Because even a lawyer who is defending a guy who shoots two people in cold blood in public and you know makes an officer lose his leg what's your motive for taking this on so that tension throughout coupled with this KKK subplot led by Kiefer Sutherland who's fantastic in this by the way terrifying um, terrifyingly fantastic i think i read one of the pieces of trivia on IMDb was that he was approached i can't remember by who but he was he was told that his performance was amazing and that that really is going to impact a lot of people. And he said, well, <laughs> I mean, I was just playing this character and, you know, I didn't really take much of it. And they're like, no, what people are going to think is that <laughs> what you did, I mean, your performance was so genuine. They're going to think that you actually believe that. And it, they, what he was saying is a compliment that that's how good he was at this. And so when you watch his character 
contrasted against you know Samuel L. Jackson's, which I think it's really great. You have Freddie Lee Cobb, Carl Lee Haley. You have this sort of bookmarked or bookended kind of names here that are um, against each other. And then you couple that with the manipulation of the NAACP trying to really get money from the black community in order to establish their own agenda. It just tells us that not that we can't trust anybody, but there's always going to be a reason, whether it's nefarious or not, for people to do what they do. It may not always be altruistic. And for Jake, I don't know that it was altruistic the whole time. I mean, he loved seeing himself on TV. Absolutely loved seeing himself on TV. And his wife called him on it. She's like, is this what you wanted? <laughs> is this why we're getting burned crosses in our yard so that you can get on TV? So watching how all that tension sort of plays into that and seeing how by the end we get, I won't call it a full resolution between Jake and Carl, but I want to say that I'd like to believe that when Jake gets out of that car and he says, I just thought our kids could play together, I'd like to say that that's a Casablanca moment. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, but we don't know. And I almost wanted Jake to say, <laughs> or I wanted I wanted Carl to say, how did you know where I live? I said, I always knew where you lived. I knew where you lived because you thought I didn't. But it's it's a it's a it's it's a not perfect resolution, but it's a promising resolution, I think is what I liked about that. Right. I yeah, like I said, it's idealistic. And the reality though is that what you just went through does not necessarily mean you're gonna have a friendship. You have a common set of values, but does that mean that you really, I mean, is this going beyond just one cookout get together? And, yeah. and that's, you know, it, the, the movie doesn't have the bandwidth to explore that. And so I'm good with the ending. I do think that Grisham shows his idealism in every single aspect along the way, though. And it gets a little repetitive because we have a subplot where we have someone in the clan who's a good guy and who's a mole. So the clan's bad, but there's, there's one good one. Right. And then we, we see this kind of crop up throughout the course of the movie. Everything that is, there's a, there's a black sheriff, right. Who is eventually going to arrest the clan and he's in control of the town still. And it's just, it feels very kind of unnatural in that way. Like, it's like, Oh, but there's a black sheriff. Like we, he, we we're giving this man a job. You know what I mean? It felt almost like that. And I, I think he wants, he wants a world where it is diverse. And, and he's clearly obviously like, this is a story about how racism is bad and not, and, and he's not, supporting it with the with the way the movie's going but he just he wants so badly to believe that everything is going to turn out right and I, there's nothing in here that is i i don't like life-changingly life i mean life it's life altering but there's nobody loses their life like the good guys the worst thing that happens to a good guy is deputy looney losing a leg and i guess he's a good guy right he's just a guy in the wrong place at the wrong time so i just found it it's very idealistic uh overall and and that ties into the ending 
which is what I really struggled with this viewing. And so I wanted to talk about this and I'm curious what you think. We get the very well-known McConaughey closing statement. Most people who've seen this movie remember this. That They don't remember exactly what he said usually, but of course, but they would remember that he gives this riveting closing statement. It's moving, it's passionate, and it's very emotional. He talks about the importance of the truth and about seeing each other as equals. And he asks the jury to close their eyes. And then he goes into basically telling the story of the two boy white boys raping Carl Lee's daughter. And he does all of this with the intention of, in my opinion, of making the jurors confront their own bias, right? Because at the very end, he says, now imagine that girl was white, right? He says, what would it be? What would you think if this happened and it was the opposite? How are you viewing this case through the lens of race and skin color? How would you view it differently if the perpetrator, and this is now that I know the history being that this is what Grisham actually witnessed was the opposite of this. He's kind of using that as a, a plug to say, haha, gotcha, right? Like you clearly, you would think about this differently. I remember being really moved by this, Patrick, in the book. I remember being moved by it in the movie. It wells up the heart. You want to cheer because goodness has won. Non-bias has won. I guess I'm old and cynical (laughs) because I struggled. I struggled. I don't know if I have a concrete landing place just yet, but I was wondering, how does what he just did impact the case? Is that legal? Is that how justice should work? Should you be able to just tell a story that is completely unrelated to the actual trial that is being you know, decided on right there then and, and now? Is there a more fair middle ground? Because Carly Hay is guilty, and, and they state this multiple times throughout the movie, but in my opinion, he is guilty of murder. And they, to me, they try to use the insanity plea I think it's pretty well proven throughout to me that he's not insane in any case, shape or form. He is acting rationally. Absolutely. He is acting out of rage and anger. In my opinion, this is all my opinion. I don't know why I got to say I'm the one talking. Of course, my opinion. So therefore, to me, he is very much guilty of premeditated murder, of which there is also a side mistake of unintentionally costing a man his let do i think that he deserves the death penalty well that's a whole other can of worms right because then you have your views on capital punishment on top of things but even within the realm of this probably not but do i think that he is innocent and should just walk free and that that's the emotional decision that we should all think we want i think that's what the audience is meant to cheer for? Should he spend his whole life in jail? It's a really complicated thing, is my point. And that's where I'm walking through all of this back and forth. Because, And that's part of what I like about it. But what I don't really like is that I feel this time around when I was watching it, like the way it's shot, the way the monologue is delivered, and everything about the beats of the plot, 
are telling me that I am supposed to be thrilled that Carly Haley is off scot-free, did nothing wrong, and it's because we were judging him unfairly because he was black. And now we didn't. And I don't know that I think that that's how the legal system should work. And it kind of frustrates me that this is a man who is a lawyer writing books who is supposed to be about the law. And I feel like we completely circumvented the purpose of the justice system in a lot of ways. So there's my rant. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a justifiable rant. I am on similar page with you. Where I think... I get conflicted is that up until the closing arguments, we had one guy on the jury who was going to dissent no matter what. Like he didn't care. He wanted that to burn, to fry. So he had his own bias. I almost at one point felt like we're getting a little 12 angry men. Like I, I kind of wanted that. I kind of wanted this idea of seeing the jurors kind of wrestle with that closing argument. And instead, what we get is this emotional closing argument or closing statement. We cut to the quiet outdoors and then we get, he's innocent. And then everything just gets crazy. So for me, from a legal standpoint, I can't speak to that because I'm not a lawyer. I believe that this was an emotionally driven decision that considered all the facts and a jury made a decision. They have no reason, just like a referee in soccer has no reason to explain to a coach or a parent why he called the foul. The jury has no obligation to tell the judge, to tell the lawyers, to tell the people, the state, why they chose to put a man in the death chair or why they chose to you know, sentence a man or to choose that he's innocent. They don't have to do that. They have no obligation to do that. So it leaves us open to speculation. First of all, to get 12 people to change their minds in that short period of time doesn't make sense. I mean, this wasn't like three weeks later. (laughs) This was a hard decision. And they, they were not on. Now you could tell in a sense that this felt a little 12 angry men asked because a lot of them just wanted to go home and be with their families. They didn't want to be in that room. So they were willing to just probably go with whatever the majority was. And I believe that is what sort of led to it. This is, this is the cynic in me. It's like, look at, okay, why would the jury a day earlier be essentially 11 to one, 12 to zero in order to convict and an emotional story that gets them to think about their racial bias, get them to change their minds, the cynic in me says that's a really bad jury because you're not taking into account the facts. But I will say this, and this is something that makes me laugh every time I see this in a courtroom drama, is when you get a lawyer that says something that gets a jury to think, oh, oh yeah, but but those guys raped his daughter. Uh, the jury will ignore that. No, they won't. It's in their heads. That's you my not favorite able to... thing about the loss. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 100%. You're, you're, you're not going to ignore that. Mm-hmm. Now, can you bring that up in discussion? Absolutely not. You can't say, well, he raped, you know, they raped his daughter. Well, that's an It doesn't matter. We have to yeah. look at the facts. But I'm thinking, Aaron, okay, a day before they were set 
on convicting this guy, regardless of what the closing statement said. They go back into a room. What are they saying to each other? They're saying exactly what the judge told them to ignore, that the case was not about the death of his daughter. It was about the death of these two men. And to speak to what Jake said in his closing statement before he gets really emotional, he talks about context. He talks about the fact that you know you hear about this doctor who was convicted of statutory rape, but what you don't know is that he was six years older than this woman, and he ended up marrying her, and they had two children together, and they lived 20 years because he dedicated... Does that change how you see him? And I love that argument. I love that argument. And I think independent of that, that emotional mo- that emotional set of dial or monologue that he had got me choked up, and it's so memorable, but it's completely inappropriate to what you're doing because you've you've manipulated the jury. Are you allowed to do that? That's my question. I would love to get a lawyer on the show and say, is that legal? Can you have that kind of freedom to basically say, those guys that are dead did something incredibly immoral. And if you were in this guy's shoes, you'd do that too, wouldn't you? When in any other case, in any other case during the trial, that would have been completely inappropriate. I don't know. And so for me, what that leaves me thinking is it really doesn't matter if my argument's that good. If I can create a persuasive closing argument where all bets are off, I can say whatever the heck I want, that's where I'm going to lean. I'm going to lean into the narrative. I'm going to lean into the emotion because that apparently is what's going to change people's minds. And so I felt a little bit like, cool, I'm glad that he got off, but I don't feel like he got off legally. And while I agree that the idea of these guys in 10 years being back on the streets is a bad thing. That's why we have the law. And that's why we have to, I think like Lucian said, you have to find the truth in the law. That's the beauty of the law is that truth can be found and it can be both. And I think that's kind of what we're meant to kind of hold our hold in our brains is that that Carl Lee is completely justified in some ways because he's anticipating the future of what these boys will do when they get out of prison or the possibility that they'll get off because of an of a biased jury or of a biased judge. But the fact is, Aaron, he's not legally allowed to do that, to predict and to make a to to make an Become action the against executioner. the executioner. Right. Exactly. So yeah. in that regard, no. <laughs> I think he was guilty. And as right. you said, while both doctors were discredited, the fact is what um what uh the DA did and getting him to confess, like yell, like I want that guy to burn. I wanted them to burn in hell. There's a guy in his right mind, you know. So he has proven that that Carl Lee was not insane. And if that's the argument that you're making, you have no substantial circumstantial evidence. You have no reasonable doubt that you can lay your head, you know, lay your hat down or whatever the phrase is, as a jury, based on the facts. As sad as it is motive can't be the only thing that gets a guy off because what happens if something else triggers him? What if he was insane? Or what if there is this thing in his brain where he's just going to pick up another gun and shoot some white guy because he thinks that his daughter was looked at wrong? I mean, (laughs) see the what if game continues to be played. And if you're, and if you're awarding that to a guy 
because these dudes were bad and the thing they did was horrendous absolutely then you're you've you've kind of made the whole justice system uneven at that point so where's the just you know where's the evenness of that where's the equality can i go out and shoot somebody because my daughter was raped (laughs) or can i have my son killed without cause or without any kind of punishment because he made a bad choice and did something like that it's it's just so complicated i can't fully my summary statement my closing argument is this i cannot fully get behind the verdict because i felt like it was emotionally manipulated and the facts were not taken into consideration or at least not enough of them based off of the argument that was being made inside the court which is that Carl Lee Haley was insane. Right. Yes. Completely agree. So yeah, I'm glad that you saw it that way this time because I, that's, I don't know why, but that's not how I felt the first time. I mean, I was swept away in the emotion of it historically. I think that's one of the th- reasons that people do love this from back in the day is because they like that idealistic ending, that feel good ending where who we see as the good guy gets off and circumvents the potential pitfalls of our legal system. The thing where even questioning Deputy Looney, in my opinion, and asking him, do you think that Carl shot you or do you think why he did this? What you think about why the person did a thing is not ha- does not have anything to do with the way that law... like. In any other movie, I feel like that would have been an objection, objection, objection. Like you can't speculate as to his reasons of or he I'm sorry. It was a question of do you harbor any ill will toward him? That doesn't mean anything. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you feel towards Carly Haley for what he did to you. The outcome is not the, the what he did is what he did, regardless of if you're okay with it or not. It's a legality of a of an action. And then. I think, honestly, the biggest problem and what makes it something people are easier and able to kind of get behind and accept is that we are told that Kevin Spacey's going up for the death penalty. So what we know as an audience, and I guess the jury, is that if they convict him, that he most assuredly is going to be given the death penalty. Like, it's a pretty much a given, right? So they're taking, like you said, they're making a decision to get around someone else who actually has that decision power. That decision power lies with the judge, right? Doesn't lie with the jury, but the jury is trying to manipulate, like you said, everything's manipulation. The jury is essentially manipulating the result because if they don't, they feel like, so that's where I landed was, No, he shouldn't get the death penalty. And if we were debating that, that's where I could get behind it and say, no, I don't think he should get the death penalty. I think there should be punishment. I absolutely do. Like, it just is what it is. And that is part of living in a world that doesn't think it's okay to have vigilantes. I mean, this is it's Batman, you know? It's it's a world where it's a superhero thing, where we love our superheroes and we look at them that way and we let them get away with whatever they want when they support our personal politics, which is, or our personal, you know, worldviews, how, whatever they may be. So it gets around the idea of a justice system, but yes, the justice system is flawed too. So 
it's a no-win situation in a lot of ways. Um, anyway, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad. A, I'm glad we're not alone. Yeah. But go ahead. Yeah, I mean, from a personal standpoint, I mean, I'm glad that those two men are dead. I'm not okay with the fact that the guy that killed them gets to get off scot free. But I'm also sympathetic towards the fact that if he's the breadwinner, even going to prison for life is going to completely jack up his family. So it's a hard, and I think that's what we're meant to wrestle with potentially with this idea that while Grisham leaves us with a kind of warm fuzzy at the end, I'm left with the lesser of two evils. And I started thinking a lot about from a law a lawyer standpoint, what's the equivalent to the doctor's Hippocratic oath, you know, do no harm. Well, what's the harm that's being done here? Are the quote bad guys dead? Yes, but you killed them and you killed them illegally. Well, by killing them, that was illegal. So you broke the law. So there has to be some kind of punishment of some kind. And I think for a lot of people, it sets this bad precedent in Canton, Mississippi, that if the crime is perceived as bad enough in the eyes of the people, the legality won't matter. So what kind of precedent yep. does this set now yep. in Canton, Mississippi? Not even from a black-white thing. I mean, let's just throw that out, even though that's part of this. Now, if I feel like someone has done wrong to my family, what's the limit? Is it only rape? Is it only beating? Is it what what's the you know what's the limit? And so now you're creating the the idea of subjective morality because the fact is the law is put in place to give us some kind of boundary that we can't fall from. The fact is I think we all want justice. I mean justice I think is a very human character trait that we all want that. And so the question that's asked in this movie from, I would say, probably a mature standpoint or a realistic standpoint, not an idealistic standpoint, but a realistic one, which is how is justice going to be served in this in this situation? Because it's definitely not him going getting off scot-free. He has to he has to pay for his sins, in a sense. He has to be able to because he was not given a fair trial. He was not now, so let me let me back up as I'm thinking through this. He was really not um being tried by a jury of his peers. I mean, these were all essentially white people who had racial tendencies, one in particular. So was it really fair? And again, I think that's where the messiness of it is that justice really isn't black and white. Justice is very gray. And so there's a part of me that as I'm working through this, I'm going, I may not have a problem with him getting off because the law says this, but let's take into account a jury that knew that the DA was going to go for the death penalty. An audience, you and me, that from a you know 30,000 foot standpoint, know that the judge is in the DA's pocket. <laughs> so yes, that subjective morality does change things. And absolutely, he won. He got justice. Those guys are dead. He's free. He's not getting the death penalty. I think that's the that's the thing. Not that he's free, but that He's not getting the punishment that is necessarily equivalent to the crime. I would say life in prison. That would be the justifiable thing for killing two men in cold blood. With parole. Yeah, with parole. With I parole. Mean, yeah. You give the person <clears throat> a chance to pay somewhat for yes. the crimes and then earn 
because we expect like he's not a violent risk, right? He is someone who yes. should be able to earn that back. And yeah, hopefully then it's more fair. Yeah, I think I think my biggest problem is just that the movie is about a hero lawyer. The stories John Grisham is telling us are about hero lawyers. And in this case, the person is using an incredibly technically what I feel is like an illegal legal tactic to win the case. And it just doesn't sit well with me. Even even right. aside from just the result of the case, it bugs me that the victory is not because he won the battle in court. He appealed to emotions by going completely off the case like you're not supposed to and flipped the jury at the very end and not winning it on the stand via being an actual lawyer, in my opinion. And that that kind of right. undid a lot of my love for it. And I, I like Jay Brigance, and there's two follow-on stories with Jay Brigance, and I've read one of them. One of the books is called Sycamore Row. It follows him, I don't know, like 10 years down the road. Another case, it's also really good, by the way. I just... It's interesting to me, you know, how we look at it now as well. You haven't, you don't have the history with it, but it's it's different how you look at it now as a seasoned old guy, you know, <laughs> uh, with families yeah. and kids and stuff, than when you're just a teenager who wants to be a lawyer, and you're like, man, that dude's cool. Look what he did. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Uh, I think if anything, Grisham unapologetically latches on to that optimistic lawyer that good can come from the law <laughs> maybe it's his is his uh philosophy and the way it plays out i think is um sometimes good sometimes not so good but for this one i think i think it was overall good well, anything else did anything else stick out to you we need to talk about uh, what about the cast anybody other than the main players i love oliver platt so it's nice for me oh uh, yeah platt show up. i just think yeah. it's fun to see him in anything He's just, uh, yeah, I love him. He's also in the West Wing, by the way. Second week in a row, I'm going to mention a West Wing kind of plug there. He's uh, he's good in that. Also plays a lawyer in in the in the show. I thought it was pretty fantastic. But yeah, he he stood out as beyond the the main crew of people. He's got great levity, and um, I love the fact that he's like <laughs> he's a divorce lawyer and basically is kind of taking his own medicine. I think he's like divorced four times. There's a line near the beginning where he's being He's picking up Jake and he said something about how he, he, you know, his, I couldn't make my, my wives happy. That's why they divorced me. And he said something like, well, it's because you can't, you're using your marriages to help you find happiness instead of trying to make them happy. So good. But now apart from that, yeah, just a solid cast as always. All right. Well, that will do it for us on this edition of feeling film. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as we have. Next week, uh, we're going to keep the the racism intact, along with uh, young lawyers, as we are doing in the in the Grisham verse, tackling the Chamber, starring Chris O'Donnell and Gene Hackman. It's written by a co screenplay co writers, I think, William Goldman and Phil Allen Robinson. So these are the guys behind The Princess Bride and Field of Dreams. So I guess by default, it sounds like it should be. Something pretty good. Uh, William Goldman was also a writer for All the President's Men. So I'm hoping. I have not seen this movie, but I'm hoping it's good just based off of that. So we'll find out. <laughs> All right. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. 
You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.